0: We're working on our series on the subject of forgiveness. How many you are glad you're forgiven? Anybody? Glad to be forgiven. We've seen the joy of forgiveness. We've seen the hardness of the human heart that needs to be forgiven. We've tried to appreciate what little we can the cost of being forgiven. Today, it's going to be what you and I have to do to prepare our hearts to be forgiven. There is a part for us to play in the process. Preparing our hearts to be forgiven, there's one thing that we must do. Every man, woman, and child must do to prepare their heart to be forgiven. And that is the word, and I know you're all going to rejoice, repent. I told you you'd rejoice. (laughs) Repentance is the one part of the equation that man must do in order to receive the forgiveness of God. Before the birth of Jesus, there came the birth of John the Baptist. There's a reason for that. Somebody had to come and prepare the way for the Lord. John had one single message. And that word was? Repent. "Repent." He said, if the Messiah is coming, you need to prepare yourself for his appearing, for his coming. And the way you do that is to repent. Listen to in Matthew chapter 3. He says, John the Baptist preaching says, repent. Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He would say to the people he preached to, Therefore, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. Prove that you're repenting. As he baptized people in the Jordan River, he said, I indeed baptize you unto repentance. And if the nation thought that John's preaching was demanding, listen to Jesus, the one he introduced. The Messiah that was predicted, he had the same message. And the message that Jesus preached was, because the kingdom has come, the first response at the good news that the long-awaited kingdom has come, the first response is this, you need to repent in order to receive the message. It was the very first message that Jesus preached, did you know that? In Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15, it says that Jesus came into Galilee and he began to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he said this, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I want you to notice, and I'll make mention this more than once, that repentance always comes before believing. Repentance comes before the exercise of faith. It could be said that in the theme of Jesus' entire ministry, from beginning to end, he never lost sight of the first thing to be done is repentance. Even in Luke chapter 13, in the middle of his ministry, he would say things like this, I tell you, no, but except you repent, you will all likewise perish. When Jesus was ascending into heaven and he met with his disciples for the last time and gave them their last instructions in Luke 24, the message he said that they were to preach is that repentance and remission of sins should be preached to all nations. Not just remission of sins, but repentance and remission of sins should be preached. So the fact is this. Repentance comes in front of believing. Repentance prepares us to receive forgiveness. And we will see this, that it is impossible to receive remission unless repentance comes first. we believe that? repentance must first come. There's a variety of scriptures that tell us this. I'll just quote a few of them for you. Acts 26 and verse 20. Listen to what Paul the Apostle says. He says, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Just like John the Baptist said, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance, Paul said, I preached that people should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their actions. Prove it. That's what Paul preached. Listen in Acts chapter 20 and verse 21, where Paul is preaching. When he describes his preaching, he says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance And have faith in our Lord Jesus. Not just have faith, but repentance comes before having faith. Hebrews chapter six and verse one, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Before the writer Hebrews talks about faith, he talks about repentance. And you have this theme all the way through Scripture. Now, that does not mean that repentance is equal to or greater than being forgiven. Only God can grant the forgiveness of our sin. But, to prepare his heart, repentance is something men must do in order to prepare the heart. I want you to think of your home that you live in. And then I want you to think that when you go home today, you're going to take out of your pocket to open the door a key. Now, let me ask you, what cost you more money, your house or your key? Isn't that a dumb question? What's more valuable, your house or your key? I won't ask you, but think about it. What did you pay for where you live? And then when you go get a key cut, what did that cost you? What has the greater value? There's no comparison between the value of a key and the value of the house. But how many know without the key, you're not getting in? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Unless you're a thief and a robber, right? (laughs) without the key you're not going to get in there's no comparison now I want you to imagine the scene that you are locked inside your own house nobody can enter into it unless you get the key and unlock it from the inside the lock to the door of our will is on the inside and only we have the power to open the door follow what I'm saying? No one's going to get in if you don't unlock the door from the inside. Now, you're you're locked inside your house. Unknown to you, the house is being filled with carbon monoxide. Now, how many know that carbon monoxide is invisible? You can't see it. How many know that it's tasteless? You'll never taste it. It's odorless. You'll never smell it. It's colorless. You'll never see it. It is totally indiscernible. You have no idea. There's nothing in your senses that's going to tell you you're dying of carbon monoxide poisoning. You have no idea that it's happening to you, but it's happening. You're being poisoned and you have no clue. Now somebody's on the outside trying to convince you that your life is in danger, and you're going to lose your life if you don't open the door all the answer to your problems on the outside but if you don't take the key unlock the door and let that help in the silent killer will take you you follow what i'm saying repentance is you taking the key from the inside and opening the door so you could be rescued from the predicament you don't even know you're in. Repentance is what opens the door from the inside. And it's the one thing we must do to receive God's forgiveness. That's how repentance works in the scripture. We want to be saved without opening the door of our heart, and without opening the door of our will. we just rather be rescued without realizing our part that has to be done. So let's give a definition. What is repentance? What is it? The Greek word, if you want to know it, is metanoia. And what that word means in modern English is to change your mind. Now that's important because we call a lot of other things repentance. But repentance is change your opinion. Change your thought. Change your purpose. Change your mind. That's what the Greek word means in all Greek literature. When it's used in the Bible, what it means specifically is you have to change the way you think. It requires a change of attitude towards sin. It means have a shift of opinion that also involves forsaking that sin. It means that you have to see sin as God sees it. You have to agree with God's assessment of it, and then you have to accept the guilt for participation in it, and then you have to resolve to forsake it forever. All that is included in the word repent when you unlock the door from the inside. In the scripture, repentance involves two turnings. Not just one, but two turnings. Number one, you have to turn away from something. And number two, you have to turn towards something. It is both a forsaking and a seeking. It's turning away from sin and it is turning to God. One of the clearest examples that Jesus gave is when he taught the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. I don't have to tell you the story because everybody knows it. But that prodigal son, he turned had to turn away from his behavior and he had to turn towards his father. He had to determine, he had to get to that place in his life where he had determined that he wanted to forsake his miserable life he had to come to a change of thinking. The Bible says when he came to himself, had to come to a change of thinking, and then he physically got up and had to return to his father. He turned from that situation, changed the way he thought, and he went to his father. That is repentance. Luke chapter 15, the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, the prodigal son, is to exemplify, illustrate for us repentance. Turning from and turning to. When he turned to his father, only then was the opportunity created for him to be restored. The heart of the father was to restore, but until he made those decisions, there was no restoration. Follow what we're saying. It's something he had to do. Attempting to turn to God without first turning from sin is being dishonest with God. Repentance is required. So let's understand that more than anything else, repentance is something you do with your mind. It's not an emotion. It is a decision. At the beginning, repentance is a mental act that we must do. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 21, verses 28 to 31, that a father had two sons. He says to the one, go work in the field. He says to both sons, go and work in the field. In the field, One said, yes, I will. But you know what he did? He didn't bother going. The other son said, no, I won't. But Jesus said he repented and then went and worked in the field. That son simply changed his mind and did what he was asked to do. The important thing I want to say right now is that the repentance was not evidenced by a great emotional outburst. No flood of tears, just a decision to do what he was asked to do. No emotion involved in that particular story. Now that doesn't mean that people having emotional outbursts is out of order. That doesn't mean that. But emotional responses simply cannot be called and simply cannot be equated with repentance on their own. Repentance, at its basic definition, is not emotional response. Repentance is a change of the way you think. It is a change of opinion, change of mind, followed by the appropriate action to demonstrate that you've changed your mind. That's what repentance is. That may come with tears. There may be no tears. It depends upon your personality. depends upon your personality. There is a vast difference between being filled with remorse and repenting. A world of difference between the two. Many people have a deep sense of grief and remorse but don't necessarily turn to God in it. Is that not the truth? Filled with grief and filled with remorse over what has happened, they don't necessarily turn to God. Repentance is an inward act. Not to be confused with outward things we do. We may outwardly confess. We may outwardly surrender. We may even outwardly try to make restitution... But an inward change of mind will result in observable outside behavior. But outward be change that is not based upon inward decision is not genuine. And it doesn't last. Outward change that's not the result of an inward change of mind, heartfelt repentance is not Genuine. I tell you, you know, we've been around the block enough times, we all have. Some people only confess because they got caught. Is that correct? They only confess because they got caught. Or some people will confess only because they have publicly created a mess for themselves from which they cannot extricate themselves, but in reality, they're not sorry. They really don't want to forsake their sin. They just don't like the consequences. So they come to you for help. They don't want to heal their relationship with God. They don't want to deal with the issue of sin in their heart. They just want you to relieve the consequences of their behavior. And you know what? It doesn't work. It just sets you up For people to take from you forever. No inward change. If we can deliver them from suffering consequences, they choose to go straight back to their sin. There's not an inward decision. So without repentance, confession is shallow. Without repentance, surrender is hypocritical. Without repentance, when people try to make restitution, it's nothing more than trying to salvage your conscience. Repentance is the thing that we have to do to experience the fullness of the grace of God. Now, true repentance is a beautiful thing in Scripture. As I said, it is the key that unlocks the door from the inside that will open you up to the fullness of the grace of God. It's the key that unlocks the door from the inside to open ourselves to the grace of God. He is merely asking us to change our mind. Anybody here have to change your mind. He's merely asking us to change our mind about what we're doing and about our relationship to God. Change of behavior will flow out of this. It's simple. Repenting can be done instantly. He's not asking you to sign a contract. He's not asking you to, to make a pledge of allegiance. What he's asking you to do is change the way you're thinking about what you're doing. Change it. It is beautiful. It is simple. Very, very simple. But that doesn't mean it's easy because there's something called the human heart the human heart. There is a deep-seated pride in every person that strongly resists the need that I have to change the way I think. Anyone want to confess to that? I don't want to have to change the way I think. There's a deep-seated pride that stops people from changing, resisting a change of mind, or causes them to resist a confession of guilt we never want to admit that somebody else is right how far are we willing to go hoping we'll get to our destination without having to turn around anybody? I shouldn't make this confession my wife convinced me that we should take a day off so we did we drove down to the Moored Mountains because it's been a while since we've been through there. We just want to go through and enjoy the view, vacate our minds, just enjoy the day out there. So I said, Well, let's try a route we've never gone before. So we looked on the internet and said, Well, I've never been to this place, but try this. And I tell you, don't believe everything you read on the internet because this is supposed to be the most fabulous view of the more mountains you could ever wish for. So I put it into my sat-nav, and here we are, going to go through it. I said, there's the sign, coastal route, let's take it. I said, okay, we're going on it. But Darla says, it's taking us away from the mountains, not to the mountains. But I said, the sign says. The sign says. She says to me, five miles down the road, we're going away. And I said, just around the corner. We'll get to it. 17 miles down the road, I had to make an admission. I'm not going to get to the destination unless I turn around. But I was hoping we'd get there without me having to turn around. <laughs> you follow what I'm saying? Anybody else do that kind of stuff? Anybody? Just, Just men, right? <laughs> Just men. You know You know, Inwardly, you know you've made a mistake, but you're going to keep on pushing the wrong direction, hoping that you can get a solution without having to admit you've been wrong. How far are we willing to go before we recognize that you've got to turn around? That God is right, or your wife was right? How far do we go until we realize it's the wrong direction? So repentance is easy. Um, repentance is simple, but it's not necessarily easy for the human heart. Because sin has taken its toll on us. It's dulled our mind, blinded our eyes, desensitized our emotion, filled us with pride. Generally, the truth is this nobody wants to repent. Nobody wants to admit they're wrong. Nobody wants to admit they're on the wrong course and they made an error. Generally, man will not choose to repent. Now, here's something the Bible teaches that the power of sin and the power of being deceived is greater than the power of conviction. Yes, you are convicted. But deeper than your conviction is this deception. Which one wins the battle? And usually it's the deception that wins the battle. So what can be done? Because without repentance, we're getting nowhere. But we don't want to repent. So let me tell you about a gracious God. One thing we're discovering is how merciful and how absolutely gracious God is. God, here's the good news for you. God has even made provision to help you to repent. Come on, shout amen or something. He's even given you help to repent. He, even come, I mean, he almost does everything for us. Here is the truth. Repentance is granted to you as a gift. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Because we're so full of pride and, and we don't want to admit and we don't want to have to turn it around. We're trying to save our own face all the time. And, but God wants to give you repentance as a gift to enable you to do those things. It's a gift. Listen to three scriptures. Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. Where it says, When they heard these things, they became silent. They glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. I want you to hear that phrase. He has granted repentance. Listen to Acts chapter 5 and verse 31. It says, Him has God exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. To give them repentance. Repentance is a gift. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 25. It says, In humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. Hopefully God will give them the ability to repent. So there's three scriptures there that talks about the ability to repent is something that God enables us to do because we as human beings don't do it ourselves. Isn't God gracious to make up for our slack? What kind of a gracious God are we worshiping here? Without outside help, We cannot repent, but repent we must if we want the grace of God. Now, people often don't understand how God helps us to repent. We don't understand the help when it comes. How can we be motivated to repent? In the Scripture, there are three ways, three ways, that God may give you the ability to. To repent. Way number one. Romans chapter 2. And verse number 4. Romans chapter 2 and verse 4. Listen to what it says. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness. Forbearance and long suffering. Not knowing that the goodness of God. Leads you to repentance. Hallelujah. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. I'm going to make a statement that that's true about every one of us. Everybody in this room today, you're doing better than you deserve. Amen? <coughs> Amen. You're all doing better than than you deserve. The goodness of God in your life is designed to lead us to change our heart and our mind and our will and make the decision to repent. God wants to gently, at first, gently motivate us to do what He has commanded us to do. Now, the Bible is clear. God's good. Amen? Amen. The goodness of the Lord endures forever. For the Lord is good and his mercy endures forever. Good and upright is the Lord, the scripture declares over and over and over. He is a good God. But religion has seemed to be able to change this this perception of God and legalism has changed this perception of God and some people for reasons I don't understand, see God as a mean, tyrannical judge who just long to sentence sinners to eternal damnation and he just can't wait to do it where does that come from it certainly doesn't come from the scripture it simply is not true if that's the picture of God who would want to admit sin to such a God as that who would want to just put themselves in line of the wrath of fire coming down to consume them if that's the image of who God is Yes, in the end, God must judge. But the scripture says, judgment is a strange work to God. The Bible says, James 2.13, He would rather have mercy than bring judgment. Amen? He would rather have mercy. How many think Jezebel was a wicked woman? Have you read the story in the Kings? Now, in, in Revelation chapter 2, there's this prophetess by that same name, Jezebel, who was up to the, just this rotten work as we read about in Kings. But listen to what God even says to Jezebel. Revelation 3.21, I gave her space to repent. I don't even want to bring damnation to her. I gave her space To repent, God gives more than ample space, more than ample time, and more than ample opportunities for repentance to happen. God's first approach in getting us to repent is through His goodness, through His amazing patience on His part. God wants to reveal himself as tender and compassionate towards sinful men. Instead of you giving you what we deserve... He excuses us time and time and time and time again, almost as if he overlooks our habits, overlooks our thoughts, overlooks our attitudes, and in spite of us, still answers prayer, in spite of us, still blesses us, in spite of us, still gives us a sense of his presence. And we know there's things out of sync in our life, and yet he's good anyway. And yet he supplies your needs anyway. Isn't that amazing? We're all doing better than we deserve. When Jesus came, he didn't come to judge. He made that very plain. I didn't come to condemn the world. When he came, the reason He was to reveal the love of the Father. He was going to be the embodiment of what God's nature is. He was going to demonstrate that God is merciful, that God is gracious, that God is long-suffering, that God is abundant in goodness and truth, that God keeps mercy for thousands, that He forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. And that's what Jesus came to reveal about God's nature. Didn't Jesus heal the sick? Didn't He interrupt every funeral He attended by raising the dead? That's a good one. He interrupted every funeral he attended by raising the dead. Didn't he cast out demons? Didn't he open up blind eyes? Didn't he restore the demented to complete sanity? Was he not gracious? Was he not tender towards the women? Didn't he have time for the children? Was he not loved by the men? Didn't he teach the unlearned? Was he not compassionate? Is he not good? His first coming was not to judge, but it was to save people from judgment in the future. Jesus came to reveal the love of the Father. If you could summarize the preaching of Peter, the apostle, he summarizes it for you in Acts 10.38. And here's his summary of the gospel. It's how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good. That's how Peter describes. I mean, Peter, the man who denied Jesus. And instead of being condemned for denying Jesus, Peter received compassion. Isn't that amazing? And Peter never forgot it. All he could say is that he's a good God. He treats me better than I deserve. He is a good God. And Peter had to learn in his own private life that it's far better to bring people to the Lord through deep love than it is judgment. God is a good God. How many will testify God is extra good to us? Even when we know we've got things wrong in our lives. How many will testify that you're doing better than you deserve? Amen? Two hands. He's encouraging us to trust Him because we know He's good. In other words, if you have to confess something to God, there's no fear of rejection. Now that's good news. There is no fear of rejection. That means it removes the horror of having to repent to the Lord. Because we know that if I repent, I'm admitting guilt. And I know that God has to deal with sin. But he's going to do it in a manner that's good for you, not destructive. We confess our sins to a good God, not a mean one. One who is quick and eager to forgive and to restore. So you and I know the goodness of God. And that that display of the goodness of God is intended to lead us to repentance. God's not trying to enforce his laws on you. He's trying to entice you by being good to you. In other words, he would rather lead you to repentance, not drive you to it. Now, if this approach doesn't work, God has method number two. You knew this was coming, didn't you? if you won't be led by his goodness approach number 2 read with me second corinthians chapter 7 verses 8 to 11 paul has to write to the corinthian church about some behavior that was going on that was damaging to the testimony of the gospel They were not doing nothing about it. They were blessed with all kinds of spiritual blessings. They were filled with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There was no lack of speaking in tongues, no lack of the demonstration of the power of God. God was being good to them. They were doing better than they deserved. But in, the, in spite of the goodness of God, they were allowing this sinful condition right in the midst of their church. It was dealing with sexual immorality, and Paul writes to them and listen to his words in Second Corinthians seven, eight to eleven. Says, "I am no longer sorry that I sent that letter to you, though I was very sorry for a time, realizing how painful it would be to you." But it hurt you only for a little while. Now I'm glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because your sorrow led to repentance. Your sorrow led to repentance. It was a godly kind of sorrow you felt. The kind of sorrow God wants us people to have. For godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation in our lives. To help us to turn away from sin and seek eternal life we should never regret his sending it just see how much good this grief from the Lord did for you you no longer shrugged your shoulders but you became earnest and sincere and very anxious to get rid of the sin that I wrote to you about you became frightened about what happened and you longed for me to come and help you went right to work on the problem and clear it up you have done everything you could to make it right Wow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. What is godly sorrow? How is that different from remorse and grief? What is godly sorrow? Godly sorrow is produced when wrong behavior is matched against God's word, and then the Spirit of God causes you to inwardly know how deep we have fallen. It's not just you're conscious of a situation, but what it is, it becomes an inward awareness that we have violated God, that we have caused God pain, and we have caused other people pain. And the Spirit of God causes you to inwardly know that you have done that. It's not just remorse, it is a godly sorrow. In the case of the Corinthian situation that Paul was dealing with, they had a mental awareness that what that behavior was wrong that they were involved in. But it wasn't until Paul's letter came, explaining in that letter how deeply this hurt God, and how they were allowing the situation to go unchecked. And it produced in them a sense of grief, a deep regret, remorse, but it produced what's called godly sorrow. So here it is. If the demonstration of God's goodness does not bring us to repentance, then God will show us our wretchedness. He doesn't threaten us, but he reveals how cancerous our sin has actually become and how hideous it is in God's eyes. Now, there are many powerful evangelists that exist today who would say this is the only way you can preach the gospel. They first use the law, and they, they show you the law, they show you how you fall short of the law, and they want the law to reveal the true depths of sin in the human heart, and only then do they make an offer of grace. says, so I can't help you with grace until you know your situation. And so they, they, they preach to, to expose the depths of the human heart very, very deeply. And some of these evangelists would even say that's the only way that true conviction can be found. Now, I do agree that true conviction often is found that way, but I would disagree with saying that's the only way that God can bring true conviction. But it certainly is a valid way. So God may use sorrow and remorse to alert us to our sinfulness. But God's goal, if he has to do this with us, God's goal is that this godly sorrow will produce repentance. You see, God can give you pleasure, He can bring you pain. He can give you good, and yes, God can even give you grief. He can make you happy, He can make you feel hopeless at times. In other words, He's going to do whatever it takes. Whether I perceive it as good or evil, He'll do whatever it takes to bring us to repentance. The fact is this, that many times it takes unpleasant circumstances to waken us out of our daydreaming existence, to force upon the urgency of our need for God in change. The house is being filled with carbon monoxide. You're dying. But you refuse, because you can't taste it, you can't see it, you can't touch it. You refuse to acknowledge the condition. Now, when repentance comes to people through this manner, through godly sorrow, It it produces very productive effects. People who have gone through this process become very careful. People will clear themselves. People will distance themselves from that behavior. It will cause them to hate the sin. It causes them to yearn for deliverance. It causes them to acknowledge the situation. And it induces us to a change of behavior so that we don't keep repeating this lifestyle. It gives us a holy hatred of sin so that we treat it like the rattlesnake it really is. Don't realize we're playing with a rattlesnake. Repentance that comes this way is usually quite thorough in people, it's usually very long lasting. Because people have come through a deep crisis, a high price has been paid to learn the lesson. And therefore, the resulting fruits are valued and appreciated. And it's usually a long-term change of lifestyle. Although it has a permanence to it, this method, number two, also has pain to it. It's hurtful to go through it that way. Why don't we just respond to God's goodness? Why do we have to do this? Why don't we just respond to God's goodness? Now, man has been pained through this process. But listen to this. It also pains God to do this. Yes, we go through some pain. But also God goes through pain. God takes no pleasure in doing sometimes what is necessary to be done. There's a far better way to be motivated to repentance The goodness of God should lead us to repentance. If that doesn't work, the chastisement of God should lead us to repentance. But there's a third way the Bible talks about, and it's a far better way indeed. And that is simply this principle if you love somebody, you never want to hurt them, and you never want to disappoint them. Is that not correct? You will never hurt the person that you love. Love doesn't do that. remember the story of Simon the Pharisee? Remember that story? Do you remember Jesus was invited to his house for meat? Do you remember that Simon didn't kiss him, didn't wash his feet, didn't offer him a nice chair? Nothing like that. Remember the woman off the street came in and kissed the feet of Jesus and washed his feet with her hair and dried with her hair. Do you remember that story? Jesus asked Simon a question. Simon, who loves more? The one who was forgiven little or the one who was forgiven much? Who loves more? Simon, using his secular, worldly wisdom, gave the answer that Jesus expected him to give. He said, well, I suppose the one that was forgiven much. Now, and Simon... Or Jesus simply used Simon's logic to press the point home to him. But I want to make a statement here. Simon's answer is true as far as the world goes. But it's not true as far as the kingdom of heaven goes. That's secular wisdom. That's not the kingdom of heaven. It's simply not true that those who have been forgiven much love much. That's simply not true. There are people who have been forgiven much who simply take advantage and don't respond in love. Didn't Jesus tell a parable about a guy who owed the king massive amounts of millions of of, of pounds, I would say, millions of dollars, whatever currency, and I can't pay it, I can't pay it, and the king just forgave him. He was forgiven much. When he met somebody else who only owed him 10 pounds, what was his response? Oh, I, I, I love so much, eh? No, he was going to hold people accountable for as little as 10 pounds when he had been forgiven millions. It's simply not true that those who have been forgiven much automatically love much. There are people who have been forgiven a lot in their life, but they don't love God, they don't attend church, and they show next to no gratitude. In spite of the God's goodness in their lives. They simply don't show much love. And it's also true that there are people who have grown up in good Christian homes who have never, thankfully, fallen deep into the world. And they love a lot. And they love God passionately with their whole lives. Nobody needs to fall into deep sin before you can passionately love Christ. Nobody needs to violate the person of Christ in order to learn how to appreciate His grace. Nobody needs to deeply experience the world so you can end up having a holy zeal for God. Thank God if you've fallen off the deep end and God has rescued you and it produces a passion for Christ, hallelujah. But you don't have to fall off the bandwagon to have a holy zeal for Jesus. Amen? You see, the kingdom of heaven operates very different than what Simon thought. In the world, perhaps, we could say, great forgiveness will produce great love. Not necessarily, but let's suppose. But in the kingdom of heaven, listen carefully, it's the other way around. In the kingdom of heaven, great love produces great forgiveness. That's the kingdom of heaven. Exactly opposite of what Simon said. In the kingdom of heaven, it's great love that produces a great forgiveness. The fact is, neither you and I want to bring pain to the Lord. Amen? Neither you and I want to bring pain to the Lord. The more intimately we love the Lord, the quicker you and I are going to repent. And because we, re- we repent, because we love, forgiveness just automatically flows to us. Let our love for God lead us to repentance. The goodness of God will lead us to repentance. The godly sorrow may lead us to repentance. But the best one of all is our love for God leads us to repentance. You simply don't hurt the person you love. You conform your life to whatever pleases that person. When we see how things affect the Lord, we quickly change our mind about everything. We change our behavior accordingly. God doesn't want to have to reduce us to grief and sorrow. He merely wants us to change our minds and our actions, to conform us to His will. If we love Him... We will regularly repent of whatever annoys him and displeases him, big or little. The deeper our love, the quicker we repent, and the deeper will be our confession and forsaking. Let's bring this to its conclusion. Let's go back. The idea is that repentance is the key to the door. Nobody else can open the door. You hold the key. On the inside. We're locked within our house. Unknown to us, we're being poisoned with carbon monoxide. You can't smell it, you can't detect it, you don't even know you're perishing. But you are. Somebody's outside said, I can help. I can save you. I can do it. But for some reason, We don't want to turn the key. We don't want to let this person in. We don't like his assessment of our situation. We don't want to agree with that assessment because that demands that I have to humble myself. If he's right and I'm wrong, we'd rather die in my pride than than accept somebody else's assessment. And somebody's trying to persuade us and persuade us. Open the door. Open the door. Open the door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Have you heard that scripture? Open the door. We need motivation. So God's trying to motivate us by treating us better than we deserve. Goodness. The goodness of the Lord should cause us to open up our hearts to Him, knowing He'll never do you any harm, never do you wrong. The goodness of the Lord should motivate you. If that doesn't work, <laughs> I don't want to go about number two again, do you? If that doesn't work, the godly sorrow, God allowing unpleasant circumstances to wake us up out of our daydream to get to the earnestness of our real situation. But the best one is this. In the bottom of our hearts, we know that we love God. Amen? And because we love Him, because we love Him, because we love Him, Because we love Him. Because we love Him. We'll never do anything that displeases Him. Quickly change. Because we love Him. To bring Him honor. So God's knocking at the door of the hearts of every man, woman and child. Without repenting, people will perish. And so God motivates people in three different ways to overcome the pride in our hearts that He may come into our lives and give us His grace. Isn't He amazing God? What a loving God He is. An amazing God.